Thank you, choir. You know, that uh, Psalm 139 is a uh, uh, favorite psalm uh, that's often referred to in the uh, Christian uh, pregnancy center movement because of how it uh, stresses the humanity of the preborn child that we were weaved uh, together in the womb by God, that we are a unique creation of God, created in His image. And because of that, uh, every individual, despite the circumstances of uh, conception, uh, have intrinsic worth and value in the eyes of God and are precious and should be uh, protected. And uh, as they were singing that, uh, uh, I, I thought it would be good to give you a, a brief report on a meeting that I was in this past week. Uh, I traveled to uh, Dallas uh, and was part of a meeting of all the uh, uh, key leaders of the Pregnancy Center movement across the nation. It brought together about 12, 15 uh, key organizations that uh, uh, minister, establish, support uh, pregnancy centers across the nation. Uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful meeting. This is a meeting that we have uh, annually. And uh, a couple of things. Uh, we had the lawyer present uh, that actually uh, brought the suit on behalf of the pregnancy centers in California to the United States Supreme Court that we recently won. And he gave us a, a wonderful uh, report uh, on that. Uh, I, I want you to know one of the things that he stated is it was not only a wonderful victory for the pregnancy centers across the nation. Now, if you are our guest and you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, California actually established a law that would mandate Christian pregnancy centers to promote and refer women to abortion, the very thing that uh, we think is the destruction of human life and is an offense uh, to our conscience as these ministries provide alternatives to abortion to see these little ones saved, to have an opportunity to discover their God-given destiny, and of course, in the context of that, to demonstrate love to the women and uh, hopefully bring them to the saving uh, knowledge of Christ. And uh, so this was a, a, a gross violation of religious liberty, gross violation of uh, free speech, and of course, uh, we won that decision, and he did state that it probably was the greatest decision ever made in the courts that would relate to religious liberty and freedom of speech, that the impact of this decision will go way beyond pregnancy centers. It will have a, a direct impact uh, related to our churches going forward and other Christian ministries and organizations concerning uh, free speech. So uh, there was a lot of thanksgiving uh, for that uh, decision and uh, a lot of appreciation uh, for you. Uh, the uh, folks in the pew around the nation uh, that diligently prayed, and I know many of you prayed very diligently that God would intervene in this situation. A, a second thing I'll mention where I could use your prayers, one of the things that we uh, discovered uh, as we were going through this time, this was sort of about a three, four-year battle, is uh, that our pregnancy center is really not ready uh, for that hostility, for the attack, for the persecution. Uh, we saw a lot of folks in the pregnancy center movement uh, sort of running scared, and you can understand, because uh, 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 this would put us in a position that if something like that would have been passed, uh, it's either comply or, as we believe we should do, uh, commit civil disobedience uh, under the lordship of Christ and uh, pay the consequences of that obedience uh, to Jesus. So there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of concern. So uh, that group uh, has basically commissioned me to develop a uh, series of, uh, or, or a study that would be about a series of about 10 lessons on uh, how the pregnancy center movement should deal with the increased hostility and attacks and persecution. And uh, these will be lessons that would be uh, videoed, uh, also put in uh, written form, and then distributed to the uh, over 4,000 pregnancy centers across the nation, hopefully uh, to undergird them in their work, because we know uh, the attacks are not going to stop. They're going to continue. 
and they will continue to intensify. They'll continue to increase. Again, uh, uh, the devil uh, attacks uh, success, and the more uh, our, our light shines, the brighter that light shines, the more visible a target we make for the enemy. So uh, I would appreciate your prayers as I undertake that task on behalf of uh, pregnancy centers uh, across the nation. Well, uh, this morning, uh, we're actually coming down uh, the home stretch of our uh, sermon series, Excelling in Our Love for One Another. Uh, after uh, today, uh, just two more lessons, and those remaining two lessons will be both taken from First uh, uh, John, the book of First John. Now, in this series, uh, again, for the sake of our guest, uh, we've simply been walking uh, through the New Testament epistles uh, to discover all the what we call one another passages, verses, that teach us how to love one another uh, in the family of God. Uh, today's message, as you see there in your sermon notes, is entitled Humility Toward One Another. Our focal passage is 1 Peter 5, uh, cha- uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, the one another verse is verse 5, which reads, And all of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but He gives grace to the humble. So look at the introduction in your sermon notes. 1 Peter is all about the church enduring the fiery trial of persecution. As Peter closes the book, he drives home two recurring themes which are keys to the church remaining faithful to Christ in persecution. Humility toward one another, both on the part of those leading and those being led, and bold resistance to evil. Now, Peter begins chapter 5 by addressing the elders, the church leaders, and reminding them of the call of an elder. And that's the first point in your sermon notes, the call of an elder. And you'll notice there in verses 1 and 2 we read, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, what does Peter say is the primary calling of an elder? What is it? He says it right there. I exhort the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, I think it's very important to first notice why Peter begins by addressing the elders, the church leaders. What is the very first word in verse 1? Therefore. And, of course, that word therefore refers back to the end of chapter 4, which is all about suffering persecution, just to give you a little flavor. Uh, Verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you, as if something strange is happening. Verse 13, you share in the sufferings of Christ. Verse 14, you are reviled for the name of Christ. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Verse 18, it is with difficulty the righteous are saved. And verse 19, the very last verse of chapter 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I love that verse because of that word entrust. In the Greek text, it actually was a banker's term, referring to making a deposit for safekeeping. And so the admonition here is, when you suffer for Christ, when you suffer conflict, hostility, persecution... You can entrust your life to God for safekeeping, knowing that He will truly care for you. 
And then we come to the first verse of chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God among you. And I think here's the point. In the same way, sheep need shepherds for protection, provision, and guidance. The church needs godly pastors, and this is especially true in times of suffering and persecution. When God's flock is attacked by its enemies, and those enemies are attempting to devour God's flock, there's an even greater need for calm, courageous, strong, steady leaders. And it's not that a leader is immune from fear and disappointment, but greater than his fear and disappointment is his love for the people entrusted to his care. And it is that love that provides the courage to stand strong in times of persecution and suffering and to inspire faith and sacrifice on the part of others in the flock of God. And notice Peter uses uh, the word elders. And he says, I exhort the elders among you. The term elder, uh, many of you in this church know, should know this. We do have an elder form of government. We moved to this form of government way back in uh, 1990. I had the uh, uh, opportunity to be one of the very first uh, elders in the church as we made that move and have been one uh, since that time. He says, I exhort uh, the elders. The, the word elder is synonymous with three other terms in the New Testament. Bishop, overseer, and pastor. And all four of those words describe the same person, describe a church leader. The term elder, when it's used, emphasizes a man's spiritual maturity, which is the fundamental qualification to serve as a church leader. The terms bishop and overseer, although they've been uh, terribly abused in uh, modern church history, in the New Testament, it, they just, those two terms simply emphasize the basic responsibility of a church leader to be a steward or a guardian of the church. And the word pastor is literally the word shepherd in the Greek and emphasizes the church leader's primary responsibility to lead, feed, and protect God's flock. And notice Peter used the plural. He says elders, which is consistent with the New Testament emphasis that the office of pastor was designed for a plurality of men, that a church is not to be led by just one man, but by a plurality of elders, plurality of, el of uh, pastors. Uh, now, why a plurality? Why multiple men? Not only to provide more ministry care, but also to safeguard against imbalance and the potential abusive dominance of a single leader. I think of the principle stated in Proverbs 11, verse 31. In abundance of counselors, there's what? There's victory. In abundance of counselors. Now, before we move on, get down in your notes the three key characteristics that must be true of an elder to effectively shepherd God's flock. And here's the first one to get down in your notes. Pride of position must be absent. That's the first thing that should be a characteristic of an elder. The pride of position must be absent. And you clearly see this in Jesus' teachings in Matthew 20, verses 25 and 28, which read, But Jesus called them to Himself, this is His disciples, his men that are going to uh, pick up his work once he ascends to heaven after the resurrection. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentile lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your 
servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The call to church leadership is a call to follow Jesus' style of leadership. Jesus, who we are told in Philippians 2, although he was equal with God, he did not consider that equality something to selfishly grasp, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a bond servant. And being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's the calling of a church leader. But not only should pride of position be absent, look at the second characteristic. The heart of a shepherd must be present. The heart of a shepherd must be present. And this is beautifully uh, illustrated in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, verses 3 through 12. I won't read uh, that entire section, but let me begin at verse 7. And, and listen to the Apostle Paul as he expresses how he related to the believers at Thessalonica. Because this is the heart of a shepherd, and this is what needs to be present in each and every church leader. He says, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. Having so fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. Why? Because you had become very dear to us. And then in verse 10, he says, you are witness, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Isn't that a beautiful illustration? He says, I was like a mommy to you and like a daddy to you. There was the tenderness of a mom, but then there was the strength of the dad to encourage, to implore you to follow the Lord Jesus. So God's shepherd is a man who holds the church membership in his heart, leads them by example, seeks them when they stray, defends them from harm, comforts them in pain, and feeds them with truth. So that church leader, there must be pride of position must be absent. The heart of a shepherd must be present. And then look at the third thing. Love for Jesus must be constant. Love for Jesus must be constant. And I think there's no other place to go to see this than John 21. Most of you are familiar with this story. Jesus has been crucified. He's raised from the dead. He's yet ascended to heaven. And this is an encounter that he had with the apostle Peter. You, you remember how Peter denied Jesus, remember, three times. And it took him into just total despair and depression. He thought he had blown it. He had thought he had gone beyond the point of no return, that he was, that he was, he was unredeemable at this point. And the scripture indicates he went back to his old life, his life of fishing, and he was out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And it really is a fascinating story. Because what Jesus did in this encounter was recreate the miracle that he did when he initially called Peter to follow him. You remember, remember that occasion? They had fished all night, caught nothing. And Jesus comes along the shore and he tells them what, remember? to cast their nets on the uh, other side. And Peter did that. And there was a tremendous drought. And he's amazed by this. And Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you to be a fisher of men. You know, from now you'll be catching 
men. And Peter began to follow Jesus. He left everything along with his brother Andrew and followed Jesus. So he's gone back to his own old life. He's in despair, depression, thought he's totally blown it. Again, they fished all night. They've caught nothing. Jesus, early morning, comes on the shore. And there's a distance between them. And Peter can't really recognize who this is. But the person cries out and tells them to cast their nets on the... And there's this huge drought. And then suddenly he realizes this is Jesus. And the Bible tells us, remember, he was so excited, he what? He jumped out of the boat and, and just swam to shore. He just had to get there so quick. And it talks about how Jesus had prepared a charcoal fire. And that's very significant. Because it was around the charcoal fire that Peter had denied Christ three times. And then for each denial, he gives Peter the opportunity to reaffirm his love. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But let me read it for you. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now remember, it was Peter that said what? Everyone else may deny you, but I'll go to death with you. Because my love is greater than anyone else. So Jesus looks at him. Jesus said to Simon, Simon, do you love me more than these? Referring to some of the other disciples that were present. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. As we just heard in Psalm 139, he knows your every thought, even what you're going to say before you speak. He said, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Notice how Jesus connected what? Love for him and tending his sheep, shepherding his sheep. And I simply read that to make this statement. There's nothing more important in the life of a spiritual leader than to always maintain Christ as their first love, their greatest passion and pursuit. Because truth is not only taught, it is caught. As an elder, as a pastor, lives what he teaches and has a contagious love relationship with Jesus. Recently, I had a uh, um, very moving meeting with a very significant Christian leader who's had a ministry in uh, uh, over 150 countries throughout the world. Man's been in the ministry many years. God's used him in a miraculous, marvelous way. I won't say his name for confidentiality. To be honest, I doubt many of you would probably be aware of this individual. But he's a great man of God. And he shared with me how four years ago, he said, Andy, I just had a total breakdown. He said, it wasn't that I necessarily felt depressed. I just lost all strength, all energy. I didn't care about anything anymore. I didn't care about Christ, I didn't care about ministry, I didn't care about my family, I didn't care about me, I didn't care to live anymore. And as God dealt with him, he said, this is what happened to me. He said, and I didn't even realize it, 
But this has been going on for years. He said, here's, here, here's what happened. My identity was in my ministry, not Christ. And as a result, I became performance-driven. It was just to achieve. It was just to accomplish. And, 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 and that's where I found my identity. That's where I found meaning in life. Matter of fact, the year before the breakdown, he had traveled over 180,000 miles in ministry. That's a good word to all of us, church leader or not. That our primary identity needs to be in Jesus. Not in being a mom. Not in being a dad. Not being a husband or a wife. Not in my work. Not in my occupation. Not in my ministry. But in Jesus Christ. In other words, to put it very simply. How would I respond if I lost it all. I lost Kathy. I lost all ten of my children. Their marriage partners. My 23 grandchildren. I lost my ministry. I lost my means, my possession. I lost everything. Like Job. Is my identity in Christ, or I could say, if that happens, Jesus is enough. And again, I'm not trying to say, please understand. I don't want to go to some extreme saying that would not cause great pain and distress and difficulty. What I'm saying is, is my identity in Jesus where if that were to happen, that would drive me to him because that's where my identity is. That's where my source of life is. And see, the first step in decline for any church leader, for any Christian, is to what? Leave your first love. That's why there's that strong warning to the church at Ephesus. He says, man, I know all about your good works. I know all about how you're, you master the Scriptures how you proclaim the Scriptures, how you're advancing the God. You're even suffering persecution, remaining faithful. But I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. Your identity is in your ministry, the things that you're doing for me. And you've lost sight of me, loving me, worshiping me. So a good word to all of us, to every church leader. And that's what's being said here. The pride of position must be absent. The heart of a shepherd must be present. But the love of Jesus must be constant. Where we find our identity in Jesus, not our ministry, Him and Him alone. Look at the manner of an elder, the manner of an elder. First, he's to lead God's flock, not reluctantly, but willingly. Not reluctantly, but willingly. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Many of you probably heard the story about the mother trying to wake up her son. And he got really upset at her, began complaining, why should I get up? Well, she said, first of all, it's Sunday and we need to go to church, you and me. He said, and she said, second, it's only 30 minutes before church starts, so you need to get up so we can get ready. And third, you're the pastor. <laughs> well, let me ask, let me ask, why the need for this exhortation? Why, what would cause an elder, a church leader, to be reluctant in exercising oversight over God's flock? Well, allow me to be transparent for a moment. Being an elder, a pastor, has its difficult days. There are times when the burden is great. The criticism wounds deeply, deeply. There is disappointment over unmet expectations. There is a deep frustration that you can't fix every person. You can't heal every hurt, solve every problem, mend every division, or answer 
every question. You are constantly and painfully aware of your limitations, your deficiencies, and your failures. I often cry out to God, God, I'm Andy Merritt is your special needs pastor, so I need you more than others. God, help me. Well, you ask, well, why would anyone want to be an elder? Well, first, it's a calling from God that you embrace. First and foremost, to honor God, to love Him, to worship Him. But let me also come at this from a different perspective that many of you will be able to relate to. You know, what I just described as a pastor's trials could just as easily have been a description of parenting. How many tears have I wept over my children? How many prayers have I prayed? How many sleepless nights have I had? But how many joys have been mine? The joy of their birth. The joy of investing in their lives. The joy of watching them grow up and blossom into adulthood. Despite all the struggles, all the concerns... See, greater than all the difficulties and heartache is my love for my children. Matter of fact, the pain is so great only because what? The love is so deep. No one has to force me to pray for my children, care for my children, teach my children, or invest in my children. What keeps a parent going? Love for their child. What keeps a pastor going? Love for God's sheep. Love for you. Look at the next uh, little bullet point there. We're talking about the manner of an elder. He's also to lead God's flock, not for what he can gain from the church, but what he can give to the church. Verse 2 also says, not for sordid gain is his motive, but with eagerness. In other words, since a church leader's primary motive is to love God's flock like a parent loves their children, a church leader measures his gains not by what he gets, but by what he gives. And then look at that last bullet point there. He is to lead God's flock not as a dictator, but as an example worthy of imitation. He is to lead God's flock not as a dictator, but as an example worthy of imitation. uh, Verse 3 says, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I love the way the paraphrase, the message puts this. Not bossily telling others what to do, but tenderly showing them the way. Listen to Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who, not barked out orders, but what? Led you who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Now look at the goal of an elder, the goal of an elder. Verse 4 says, and when the chief shepherd appears, that's referring to Jesus, of course, you will receive what? The unfading crown of glory. So here it is in that next bullet point. An elder is to seek one thing alone. Not the applause of men, but the approval of God. Not the applause of men, but the approval of God. Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4, where the apostle Paul becomes very transparent. He says, you should look upon us as ministers of Christ, as trustees of the secrets of God. And it is a prime requisite in a trustee that he should prove worthy of his trust. But, as a matter of fact, it matters very little to me what you or any man thinks of me. I don't even value my opinion of myself. Because that does not justify me before God. My only true judge is God himself. The moral of this is that we should not make 
hasty or premature judgments. When the Lord comes, He will bring into the light of day all that at present is hidden in darkness, and He will expose the secret motives of men's hearts. Then shall God Himself give each man His share of praise. And then Paul said in Galatians 1.10, Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So a church leader is not there to please people, but to please God. To submit to His authority. To serve His agenda. To seek His approval. His will. Now look at the responsibility of God's flock. The responsibility of God's flock. He dressed the elders. Again, they're dealing with persecution, dealing with suffering. He's very concerned that they stand strong. He knows that leaders are going to be a key in times like that. But then there's the responsibility of God's flock. And the first thing that he says, that first bullet point, submit to your elders. Submit to your elders. Look at verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Great, great cross-reference is Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account to God, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And again, I think the reason he's making this exhortation in this context, he realizes if they're to stand up against the persecution, if they're to remain faithful to Christ in the midst of the suffering, they're going to have to be united. He realizes a divided church will never stand. So like in any realm of life, there's order in the home. There's the husband, the wife, the children. You know, in the workplace, there's the employer and the employee. And in the church, yes, he has designated church leavers. Again, to serve the church for the good, for the building up in the edification of the church. And he's very concerned that in the midst of all that, because he realizes not everyone's always going to agree with the decision of the church leaders. He recognizes that. There's going to be divergence of opinion, and there's nothing wrong with that. As I said last week, what has hurt the church is not the fact that we have differences and disagreements. What's hurt the church is that we do not demonstrate a love greater than those differences, a love greater than those disagreements, where we're able to maintain unity in the midst of that diversity. And so he, he wants to make sure that they remain united to be able to stand against the persecution. And then the one another verse, the next bullet point, serve one another clothed in humility. And all of you, that would say, that's church leaders, God's flock, the whole shooting match. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves, circle that. Clothe yourselves comes from a fascinating word in the Greek that pictures, literally pictures a servant putting on an apron before serving others. Let me ask you something. What do you believe prompted Peter to use this metaphor? Can you guess that last, that Lord's Supper that Jesus had with his men the night he was arrested? John 13, he rose from supper, Jesus. And remember the context? When he did this, what were his disciples doing? They were arguing. Who was the greatest among them? They were arguing who should have the seat of honor closest to Jesus. And so they're arguing about this. Jesus doesn't say anything. He rose from supper. Laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. There was no lower task than to wash feet. And this was reserved for the lowest of servants in any household. 
And then it, we're told, that, and so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments again and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, what? Regard others more important than yourself. Not looking to your interest, but to the interest of others. Look at that next bullet point. Submit to your elders, serve one another clothed in humility, and then suffer under God's powerful hand which lifts up the humble. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Let me give you a very simple but good biblical definition of humility. Humility is just simply a proper view of myself that leads me to admit my sin, to acknowledge my need for God, and then put my total dependence and trust in God alone. That's it. It's a proper view of myself that brings me to be totally honest, transparent, in admitting my sin, acknowledging my need for God, which leads me to put my total dependence and trust in God. Now, the phrase, the mighty hand of God, I, I wish I had more time to develop this. But my time's going quickly. In the Scripture, that refers both to God's discipline and God's deliverance. And this is beautiful. It is precious. Peter acknowledged earlier in the book that God uses persecution. He uses suffering. He uses adversity as a tool to cleanse, refine, and purify his children. But now here, in chapter 5, verse 6, he acknowledges as we remain under God's hand, allowing God's hand to have its way in us, to perfect us, refine us, cleanse us, change us. That same hand that disciplines us, delivers us at the proper time. God's time and in God's way. Now go back to verse 5. Just a moment. Notice it said, God is opposed to the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. What does it mean when it says God opposes the proud? Well, one of the best illustrations I've ever heard is by, from Stephen Douglas. He's the president of a Campus Crusade, what is called Crew now. And he illustrated it this way. And uh, I really relate to this, I guess, because I did play football, and in my high school days, I was a quarterback, and a quarterback's best friend is the offensive tackle, and these offensive tackles are nasty people. They're big brutes that like to beat up people. And this is what he says, can you imagine lining up against a 300-pound NFL offensive tackle? His whole job all day long is to oppose you. He will hit you, scratch you, bite you, throw you on the ground, etc., to keep you away from your objective. What a way to spend an afternoon. Now imagine getting up tomorrow morning and getting ready to face your day. As you approach the line of scrimmage, you look up, and standing across the line from you is God. God says, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to oppose you today. But God, you cry, I thought we're, we're, you're on my team. I thought we were together. My child, God says, I love you so much that I must oppose you when you walk in pride. I'm doing this because I've not given up on the possibility that you will learn that you cannot live life by yourself. Look at that last bullet point, surrender anxiety to God. Surrender anxiety to God. Well, no, it's actually not the last bullet point. Casting all your anxiety upon him because he what? Cares for you. Very quickly, 
it's a very familiar verse, but let me point out something about this verse that's, that's uh, just about always neglected. Peter is actually, he, he has taken this verse from the Old Testament. It's Psalm 55, verse 22. It says, cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. So he drew that verse from Psalm 55, verse 22. Now, David wrote those words. And listen, this is fascinating. David wrote those words when he was suffering persecution. Earlier in the Psalms, David wrote this. He says, I am restless in my complaint, and I'm surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring me trouble, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. How appropriate for Peter to draw from Psalm 70, 55 since his book is also about dealing with persecution. And what Peter is saying in the context, which is often missed, is that God calls believers to humility when we are faced with hostility, betrayal, and persecution. We are not to strike back at our persecutors. We are to throw our cares on God, knowing He cares for us. He will sustain us, and He will not let the righteous fall. And then the next bullet point, stand up against the attacks of the devil. Stand up against the attacks of the devil. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I'll save my comments on that for tonight. That will be our focus tonight as we deal with our adversary and resisting him. So then look at that last point in your sermon notes as we close. Secure yourself on God's grace. Secure yourself on God's grace. And three beautiful truths. Suffering is temporary. Praise God. Suffering is temporary. And after you have suffered for a little while. See, we often get so caught up in this world, we miss sight of eternity. This is just boot camp for the next, just to prepare us for eternity. So suffering is temporary. On the other hand, glory is eternal. Glory is eternal. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ. And then the third thing, grace will make things right. Suffering is temporary. Glory is eternal and grace will make things right. He himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. I want to close, and this will be the last thing. No comment. I'm just going to read it. I want to read just a portion of 2 Corinthians 4 from the paraphrase, the message. Remember, our message is not about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Master. All we are is messengers, errand runners from Jesus for you. It started when God said, light up the darkness, and our lives filled up with light as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ, all bright and beautiful. If you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness we carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of that. You know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do. But we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't broken. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, He does in us. He lives. Our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, 
you're getting in on the best as Jesus is displayed through them. So then here's how he concludes the fourth chapter. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. Amen. These, listen to this, here's the, here, this ties into this, that verse we just looked at in 1 Peter. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. Father, thank you for the power, the truth of your word. And um, we pray that it would edify our hearts uh, today. And as Peter's intent was to strengthen the people in times of adversity and suffering and persecution, that whether a church leader, whether a part of God's flock, that the truth today would strengthen us uh, to remain firm in our faith, knowing that you will be forever faithful. So, Lord, uh, we give you our lives. And, Lord, uh, I think one of the big words for us today is the importance of maintaining our identity in Christ and not anything else. Maintaining Christ is our first love, greatest passion, and pursuit to learn contentment in all things because Jesus truly is enough and Jesus alone satisfies and even can bring a joy that runs deeper than the pain and the hurt. While we look not on things which are seen, but those things which are unseen, while we look not on those things which are temporal, temporary, but as we look on those things which are eternal. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's use this last song just as an opportunity to praise God for the truth we've heard. Uh, now, I'll remain here. If anyone has a, a decision of uh, any nature, uh, you desire to unite with the church, profession of faith, uh, but I want us just to put an amen to this message and to praise Him. So let's unite our hearts right now and praise God for the truth that uh, we heard. And then, and then as we praise Him, also be asking God, God, give me the grace to live this truth out and to be faithful no matter what comes my way. Amen. Please stand as uh, we share this song together.